television is where all the big risks are being taken, where the most exciting work is happening. And this is a festival that celebrates that. Finally, there is an independent avenue for people who want to just go into the TV business. It's just wonderful to have an outlet for all of the creativity that's happening in television and in new digital media right now. The fact that there's this, there's Series Fest, which allows you to put it in front of an audience and gives you a platform to put it out there. Like that's the most impactful thing as artists that we can ever hope for. Hi, I'm Randy Kleiner. And I'm Kaylee Smith Westbrook. As the co-founders of Series Fest, we welcome you to Breaking In, a Series Fest podcast. In 2015, Series Fest began its mission to champion and empower artists at the forefront of episodic storytelling by providing year-round opportunities for creators and industry experts to connect, collaborate, and share stories. We are thrilled to expand our mission with this podcast as we talk to working professionals in television and gain insight, advice, and hear their journey of breaking in. of film and television and founder of Populous. Tamir's most recent credits include executive producing the Peabody award-winning HBO series Random Acts of Flyness, as well as the graphic novel The New World, which he's developing as a feature with Warner Brothers Pictures. Tamir previously oversaw 150 at Warner Media, including developing and producing the original Slate. Under his direction, 150 incubated several boundary-pushing projects before positioning them in the company's divisions of Warner Brothers, HBO, and Turner. Prior to joining Warner Media, Muhammad was VP of Content Development for Tribeca Enterprises Digital Studios. He also previously served as VP of Film, TV, and Online Programming at the Tribeca Film Institute, overseeing funding and development. Hello, Tamir. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You you have such an amazing uh, festival that you do. And then now these podcasts is an extension of that. And I'm just happy to always participate. Tamir, you have such an amazing and interesting, impressive career. And I'm really looking forward to delving into it. Um, so let's get started. And I want to really start with where you are right now. You're the founder of Populous, a production company. You're based in New York and Los Angeles. Why don't you tell me a little bit about Populous and how it got started? Well, thank you for uh, the acknowledgement of my career. It's, you know, sometimes when you're on a path, you don't realize until you look back and others uh, pointed out to you sort of the steps and, and what you've accomplished and how you've gotten there. You know, for me, Populous has always been about trying to keep that spirit. You know, I think, you know, along the way, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of great artists. And I use that term in its widest sense, um, because I think stories are stories. And, you know, you could be a playwright, you could be a filmmaker, you could be an author, or you could just be someone who was bold enough to tell their own story, you know. But point is, is that I focused on populist to be exactly what the word means. It means people. I love the human condition, what makes us complicated, what makes us us, um, and trying to find stories that taps into that. But with the goal of entertainment, you know, it's always about that because that's always something when we sit down and we're trying to buy time from somebody, it's about trying to find ways to entertain them. So I wanted to create a company that was artist-friendly, but also audience-friendly. Um, and when you combine the two of those things, it's like, well, where's the opportunities? And I think the best way to do that is pop culture. Um, and that's why you have the word populist in there. Um, we uh, have seen in the past, there has been eras, whether it's the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, where, you know, the television and TV shows uh, sort of 
defined what those eras uh, felt like. And so what what are the stories now that define who we are now? And so whether it's, you know, told in a genre driven thing or something that is uh, pushing boundaries, uh, I want to get at it and figure out what it could be. I love that. I love that so much. Um, and do you work in both scripted and unscripted? Uh, my main focus has been scripted. Um, and I think, again, trying to hit, you know, pop culture of now. I mean, there's a lot of great documentaries that do it. I think for me, it would have to be specific. Um, a lot of our projects, uh, you know, come to us from either a germ of an idea or opportunity I have, but a lot of times through submissions and relationships. Um, it's not to say that I wouldn't do a doc. It would just have to fit all those things that I said. And I think the other part to it, too, I want to look for stories that allow you to sort of lean in and lean out. You know, I always think, again, with audience, you know, I'm the type of person I come home, I just want to zone out and sort of, you know, have something play nicely in the background. And then there's always the person next to you where, you know, uh, they want to lean in a little bit more and get the layers. And so it's like, where is that opportunity for the duality? And so for me, it's always looking at, you know, how to do that. So if there's a documentary that allows you to do that, absolutely, um, we would do it. You mentioned submissions, and I, it was one of the questions I wanted to ask you is how do you take submissions? And, you know, is it best for a new writer to try to get an agent so it goes through mostly agency? Or would you take a cold submission? Um, it all depends. I think for me, it's always about where are the opportunities. I think, you know, Hollywood is built the way that it's built. You know, we try our part to sort of not only participate in it, but try to change the way that uh, it has been designed to sometimes exclude people, especially new voices. Um, I think there is always a benefit to having, whether it be an agent, uh, a producer, somebody with the level of experience sort of uh, submitting your, your work, because that allows for everyone to sort of prioritize it in the sea of noise, right? But I, I would say that, you know, for me, it's always sometimes about making sure it's the right story. And if you feel that there is a story that you are destined to tell, you know, it's been vetted a little bit, not by necessarily your best friend, but someone in the industry who can critique it in a way that you feel strongly that this is a solid piece of work. Um, yes, there is the agency path. Um, sometimes you have an agent who only uses that to submit you for a writer's room, which is a great step. But if the goal is to get that particular project made, there may have to be a little bit of pre-vetting and pre-packaging, I think. Um, to sort of make the strongest case that people are seeing exactly what you are seeing in the project. How many submissions do you get and kind of read and go through a year on average? Uh, it's tough to say. I think during COVID, we've seen an increase. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think everyone uh, has been writing. Um, you know, I don't want to overstate or understate a number per se, but what I would tell you is that this is the time where we've probably seen uh, the most submissions because everyone is, you know, had a moment of just being calm. And so it was the year of in half of writing um, that we have seen. Given that time, are there any trends that you've seen in writing that you've noticed over the last year, year and a half? I've seen a trend in what executives think that they want, you know, <laughs> and what they think audiences want. I always joke, like, is there some secret Zoom that they're all on that sort of determines audience doesn't want anything depressive, you know, <laughs> or we need things that's noisy. 
you know, it's like, oh, that's the new word. Uh, and I say that jokingly, but I say it seriously that, you know, um, there is a trend that I think that executives are trying to look for what they think is a shift in audience. Um, and again, my company's built on trying to tap into audience. Um, but I'm inspired by just artists who are, you know, not telling a story they want to tell just because there's some big Hollywood opportunity, but telling a story that it's in them. They're going to write that story and do it well because it's who they are. Um, you know, you just seen recently someone like Michaela Cole encouraging writers to write in the quiet moments. Um, and, you know, those are those stories that, you know, I think for me, I hope becomes the truth. Because no matter what some exec says or not, you know, writing, great writing is great writing. Uh, you know it when you read it. Um, you know it when you make it. And audiences know it when they see it. And so, you know, trends have a way to sort of let you know, sort of going in what so an exec is looking for. But I would probably encourage writers to write to what they know. Absolutely. I think that's great advice. And you keep talking about, you know, it's not just the story you love working, you love working with the artist. And you've worked with some of the best and and one of my favorite artists, Terrence Nance, who I remember seeing an oversimplification of her beauty and just being so blown away. And you worked um, on an HBO series, Random Acts of Flyness. How did that project come about? I mean, Terrence, I, I love working with him. And that's a perfect example where I use the word artist. I mean, it would be doing a disservice for his uh, talent and his ability to tell stories just to say he's a filmmaker. He said this, he said that, you know. Agreed. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it came from, you know, first of all, having a almost 14, 15 year relationship with Terrence. Uh, I met him originally through my wife. They were working together and she said, you have to look at this artist. He has great work. And, you know, at the time I was uh, over at Tribeca. And so it started there where I was able to uh, get to know his work over a course of years. So when I came over to Time Warner, which is now Warner Media, I uh, was responsible for uh, helping to launch something called 150 um, that exists now. And it was an opportunity to invest in some ideas that, we felt the company as a wide, and when I say the company, I mean HBO, Warner Brothers, and all the Turner divisions could sort of benefit from, you know, ideas that allowed us to invest in them early, you know, develop some kind of proof of concept, uh, and then bring it with in, in the company. And I was obsessed at the time with this idea of disrupting news. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, I spent some time thinking about what that was, because there was all these talking points of millennials don't watch the news again a secret Zoom that someone had and decided that millennials don't watch news. And I don't know if it's true or not, but I know that we love to collect information, you know, and, you know, as people general, no matter what bucket you fit in, right? And so I wanted to find a way to see if there was an artist who could uh, challenge that idea and, and do something with it. And so I called Terrence up and asked him basically what was his version of the news. Um, and so that sort of birthed this idea of random acts of flyness. It's not a new show, I'm sure, as you have seen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and Terrence would not call it that. Um, he would call it, uh, you know, a concept album um, of the conscious mind. Um, and that's great. In fact, I appreciate it. But when we pitched it, you know, it was Terrence Nance's version of the news. 
that's such a phenomenal way to put it. Um, <laughs> a concept album, especially too, because it's it's just it's so creative. It's such a creative series. And if you haven't seen it, listeners, go and find it. I, it's on HBO Max. You can watch it now. Definitely check it out. What, one other quick thing about that that I think should be pointed out. I mean, Terrence, you know, you have to know his work to know that he kind of has a, a handle on documentary scripted and also animation and so to be able to have an artist who works in all those mediums give their version of the news becomes something that i think is exciting to see what is a possibility and so even me as a producer i had to take a little bit of explaining to people that didn't know his voice who he was and sort of pointing that thing out and so i think it goes back full circle about what i'm talking about before that as a writer or whoever you can go in on your own and sort of pitch some idea, but it can work faster if you have a partner in a producer, for example, who knows how to pick apart what you're what you're trying to make and present it in such a way. Because it's all about the framing. If you watch a show like that, you know, most people will be lying if they could say that immediately they go, oh, that's a TV show. Of course it is. You know? <laughs> so it's all in how you dissect it and then frame it to, you know, a network, to whoever it is, to sort of understand what it is that you're trying to do. So I'm glad you brought up pitching, because obviously that's such an important part of, you could have the greatest idea in the world, but you have to go in there and sell it to someone and and have to be able to know how to pitch it. What's some of your most important points that, or advice that you would give to someone walking into a room to pitch? I always start with reminding people that we're human first. You know, you have to remember, just like yourself, that person you're pitching to might have had three Zooms, five Zooms pitching before you. Um, They're trying to navigate the the turnaround, the changes within the company. Um, There's been some probably new mandate of where the buckets they have to focus on. And so sometimes you're starting there. Right. And I think where people uh, sort of trip themselves up is that they just sort of go into the pitch a little bit. And I think that is obviously uh, needed because I think the more succinct you are, the better you will be. And I think a lot of times people uh, have to uh, figure out a way to tell their bosses what it is the project that came across. And if you don't get them excited, if you don't get them to be clear about what you're trying to do, it makes it that much harder when you end the Zoom for them to go back and sort of explain it um, and sort of uh, champion it. And so, um, again, I think those those things are important. Um, but then obviously, I think just the simple basic nuts and bolts, you know, what is your story? Who is the characters? How does it get complicated? What's the format? What are some comps? You know, those are just a very simple way in um, to just be able to explain most shows. Um, and then also the ones that are complicated, it's like, again, it's complicated, but with, how do you strip something down? You know, and before you bring on the dragons and the this and the that, <laughs> at the core of it, what is this really about? Um, I think it's also something very important to remember too. How has your pitch changed at all over Zoom rather than being in person? Yeah, there's been pros and cons to it. You know, I think in person, you're able to connect in a way that, you know, as I just said, you can uh, engage people in a way that they feel good about you, feel good about this pitch because it's in person and, you know, people are not 
you know, exhausted in the same way that multiple Zooms can give. Um, I think that's been um, a, a sort of like um, a con is that you don't have that personal interaction that gives you great momentum going into this in the pit. But the pro is the presentation. You know, you're able to um, bring up a, a, a pitch deck on a screen. You know what I mean? Why simultaneously reading from notes in, in a script, you know, if you're really good at pulling off reading from a script and not making it seem like you're reading from a script, you know, right. <laughs> but, but if you're in person, you, you don't have that ability to do that. A lot of it is conversational and you're leaving the deck behind. Um, Cause even, you know, in that there, there's some, there's some pros and cons, but I think the adjustment had to be, you know, you lose some things, but you gain in that you, you can prepare a, a pitch presentation wise, um, we're a visual medium. So the more you can put visuals up there to aid your pitch, uh, the better off it, it feels. Absolutely. It's such a, such a great point. Um, I want to go back a little bit to something you were talking about with populace, which is obviously audience and entertainment and that being so important. And it also made me think as we're talking about pitching, I mean, obviously the television landscape and film landscape has changed with streaming and it's, you know, provided some great opportunities in terms of there's more of an outlet and more places to go. But I think it's also challenging then to also make sure to, that you're going to the right places to pitch and that you're being smart about how you want to distribute your film. Um, do you want want it to go to theaters? Are you OK with it going straight to streaming and, you know, or, you know, right on to VOD? You know, how do you approach when you're ready to kind of figure out where you want it to go. How does that play into it? If you are fortunate to have a team, whether that be an agent, a manager, a studio, you know, a lot of times they're getting intel just as much as you are of what, what the market is like. And so a lot of times uh, that is dictating when you go, you know, out and to whom um, just from, from that intel. Um, but for me, it's always about where do I feel like there's something thematically happening in the world that I can sort of lean on to show the urgency. You know, um, you know, I think, again, it doesn't have to be something heavy. It doesn't have to be something like police brutality. It's just, what are we doing in this world that you can sort of immediately say, hey, it's like this. And people immediately say, yeah, because it feels urgent because it's something that, you know, it's, again, we as people are interacting and doing. Um, but I think also just more from a just simple business standpoint, you know, uh, I like to think that, you know, I, I like to wait until I can identify three platforms, either by what I see them sort of buying and, and announcing, but more importantly, my pre-conversations in general with them about what they're looking for as well. And if I can identify three for each project, then I feel it's good enough to go because that's a market. You know, at the end of the day, you're lucky to get one uh, offer on a project, but two makes it a makes it competitive. You just need two to be competitive. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so if you you can identify three that you feel very very confident in, then you know you might get one from that, and then it's the other fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth one that your manager, your agent, or your your producer, whoever sets up. Sometimes it's that wild card that you don't even know but they seen something in the pitch and said, yes. And so you just, at the end of the day, need one. Yes. Um, and so I like to wait until I can identify three. 
I think that's so important what you said about, I mean, doing the research first too. also know, know what these platforms are looking for, know what their market is. Um, first of all, because you'll be in the right place, but that you know who your audience is, is, is just so important. You know, we sometimes ask our creators to fill in like, who would, you know, where do you, where could you see this? You know, what platform could you see this on? And when they answer, you know, ABC, HBO, Netflix, BET, it's like, you know, you don't, you don't know who your audience is. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I, th- I just think that's such an important thing to say. So um, I believe you're currently developing a graphic novel, The New World. Is that correct? That's correct. With with another artist, I uh, will call him Jeremy Harris, um, which uh, who uh, wrote the Slave Play, which was just one of the most phenomenal pieces of work I've seen in the last few years. How did how did this project come about? You know. That project is, for me, I'm excited about it because it's a graphic novel, first of all, that has a, a, a Black female lead within and along with the Asian, you know, co- co-star, right? And so when you put that into commentary of a sci-fi about the new world, there's so much opportunity. And then to have an artist like Jeremy, I mean, if you mentioned, you know, his plays like the slave play he definitely has a lot of texture to his voice <laughs> uh, and then don't forget he's also uh wrote zola uh co-wrote zola that you know has been a pop culture uh moment and on top of that have a whole host of other projects um that he has worked on even with hbo and so jeremy is another opportunity to give a property like that um and sort of allow him to um bring that texture and bring that commentary to it. Um, the writer of that actual graphic novel is um, Alish. And Alish gave us a great, you know, start and sort of building out this world that kind of was complex. Um, and in working with Jeremy, I think the goal is always to how do you preserve that artistic voice? Um, but at the same token, meet it with what a studio uh, is looking for as far as, you know, an epic, you know, love story, told in this bigger sci-fi driven world. And it's been a fun uh, exercise of sort of figuring it all out. Um, And I would tell you that, you know, again, just like you, I'm sure just seeing the possibility, I'm excited to sort of see uh, where we land with it. Well, I'm just going to admit this to you, and I guess anyone else that's listening, um, I am an avid sci-fi reader, and I do read a lot of graphic <laughs> novels, so I was very excited when I saw this announced, um, and of course that you're part of it. It's just, uh, I, there's, it's just such a, there's such a massive scope to it, it just can be, I can certainly see it visually, it'll be very exciting. Um, do you find it more difficult to adapt something versus something original, work on something original? Uh Yes, but before I want to go back to what you just talked about, you were an avid sci-fi, um, you know, viewer, and and that's why I love doing what we do. You know, you and I have two different upbringings, two different parts of the country, but we're connected through genre. You know, totally. <laughs> it's like <laughs> there's so many sci-fis that we can sit here and have a whole podcast about and break down the plot, the story, and feel so connected. And so for me, it's always like, how do we keep that going? Because we've been spoiled when they talk about the history of cinema and television of so many great examples of, 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 of just those type of stories that would connect us. And so I'm always looking selfishly for 
not only to have those opportunities, but to be the one behind that opportunity, you know, to give audiences. Um, but to also answer your question about, you know, adaptation, of course, because, you know, listen, if you have a product, a, a project, a piece of IP that you have pitched to a studio or a studio brought and gave to you, you always have to try to think, well, what was it about this property that made someone want to adapt it? And sometimes those things don't line up with your own artistic, you know, uh, vision. And if you don't know that going into it, the challenge is that you might be adapting away from the thing that makes everybody else excited. Um, so that has been, you know, not necessarily for me personally, but I think I have seen, you know, different writers and producers have that challenge sometimes. Um, I think in addition to that, uh, you don't know until you go through the process if the writer is the right writer, you know, because, you know, yes, there's already a sort of blueprint, if you want to call it, of who this character is, who this is, but especially if it's a book or if it's a, you know, a piece of property that's dated and that you're trying to revamp. It's like, how do you know, not only if that writer knows how to identify with you, what are those parts to continue with, but if they're the right person. And so sometimes that can be challenging. Um, so I don't really rest on doing a lot of adaptations, but I think when it presents itself as a clear, you know, when I think there, there's always room to, to um, explore those. Absolutely. I also think, you know, especially with a book or something like that, you know, there's so much material there and you have to figure out what parts to keep to bring it into, you know, a two hour film or, you know, whatever it's going to be, or even a book into a season is still, I mean, so it's, it's a lot of material that you have to figure out what are the most important points to keep and then how do we elevate it that makes sense for the story that's being told on screen. It's just, you know, the different mediums and, and, Stay, but staying true to the uh, but staying true to the source material too. Absolutely. I mean, if you even sit here and think when you're listening to this podcast, how fast and slow at the same time sixty seconds is, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you can't take the elements that excite you and that make you clearly see how it's a movie, how it's a TV show, and tell somebody else in sixty seconds, and by the end of it, have them go, huh. I totally want to see that, then you're probably off. And I think um, a lot of times people don't do that. You know, they want to spend a half hour explaining, you know, why they love this and who this character is to them and blah, blah, blah. But if you can't just tell it in less than 60 seconds to someone else that make them go, hmm, and get it, have that, ah, I see it, then you're probably a little off. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. Well, I want to go back a little bit since this podcast is called Breaking In. What was the first job that you had in the industry? <laughs> uh, believe it or not, it was at Tribeca. Um, I started out as an intern at Tribeca, but this is when they were just a production company. There was no festival yet. Um, and then uh, quickly moved into Jay Rosenthal's office. Um, to help assist and uh, got a really big crash course and sort of, you know, how everything works. She has been someone that has been instrumental in my career as far as, you know, 
exposing me to a lot of, you know, just the process, uh, connecting me to a lot of people and publicly putting her, her, uh, support to everybody and anyone who would hear it, um, you know, about who I was and what I was going out to achieve. Um, so it was one of the first and most important, you know, points in my career. And then I took some time away from there. Uh, my next job from there, I was working at a production company where we did a lot of music videos and commercials um, before making my way back to Tribeca, um, where I was over at the Institute overseeing a lot of different um, grant programs. Um, but full circle, uh, Tribeca with Jane was one of my first jobs and probably one of my most important uh, moments in my career. And started as an internship. I think that's so important because I think when people are looking for opportunities, interning, I think, can be so important. It was instrumental for me and how I got started in my career. My first internship was at the Public Theater. So I was just down the street from you. (laughs) Yes, Um, yes. but, But that truly changed my whole life and trajectory and career. Um, so I just think it's important to, you know, when you're looking and you want to learn more about something or you want to get involved, you know, or you're just coming out of college or you want to get involved or change careers a little bit. An internship is such a great way to, you know, find somebody that you respect or somebody's career that you want to follow and, and try to get an internship, I think, is just so important. Absolutely. The right internship can set you up. And when you talk about submissions, I'm shocked that we don't get more uh, intern increase. Um, internship increase because it's such an opportunity to be able to get get your first foot into a door. And if you work in the right place and with the right person, they'll put you in a position to to exercise a little bit of your abilities, but uh, set you up. Absolutely. Um, and so, so you left Tribeca. You came back to Tribeca. Did you? And then, and then you were working in. So you said grant opportunities. Was that right? Or you were? Yeah. Well, I oversaw this all the scripted funding at Tribeca Film uh, Institute. Um, and I did that for quite a while. Um, so um, one of the more storied uh, initiatives that I oversaw was an um, initiative called Tribeca All Access. Um, the list goes on. Um, we could sit here for days and talk about all the different artists that came through there that are now having really uh, great uh, careers, including, for example, Terrence. Um, it's a, one of the times where I uh, supported him in there. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the Institute at Tribeca, you know, I'm sure just like, you know, all the rest of the, the Sundances of the worlds and, and so forth, they were and are a pivotal, um, you know, point of access for artists to be able to get, you know, some funding, but more importantly, the exposure, because there was a time when I was in Tribeca where Hollywood was not paying attention to those, you know, those moments, um, they, you couldn't get them to to focus on it. But I think now it's like the minute someone goes through Sundance or through Tribeca, you have so many execs and managers and agents clamoring to sort of grab. Um, and so I'm I'm happy that we are there. I mean, it's not a true celebration because I think we have a long way to go to get to a point where a lot of different artists are uh, being supported. Um, but I think, uh, it, it's always great to see, uh, when a shift like that is going in the right direction. Um, so besides Sundance and Tribeca, are there other, uh, either festivals or conferences that you go to look for new voices, new work? Absolutely. I mean, obviously there's always the festival route. Um, there's lots of different festivals that I'm sure if I name them, everyone will sort of see. Um, but I think 
some of the places that I go is just where some of the industry, for example, just for laughs, which is one of my favorite comedy festival. Obviously, the comedy uh, pro is, is one of them. Um, I also am fortunate that because of my background, as far as the amount of artists that I've worked with and supported, that a lot of times I get people through them. You know, they, you know, I uh, pride myself on being an artist-friendly producer. And so a lot of times when an artist has a piece of work, they want someone to champion and understand, you know, it's, I often get recommended for that. Um, I also have made a living being someone who uh, people trust, can spot talent, spot potentials in a project. And not only that, but bring it up to where, a studio and network and want to invest. So I would be giving you trade secrets if I was to point <laughs> okay. to every uh, thing and every way I go about uh, being able to do that. But um, I think just to get to it from a sort of inf- informative place uh, for anybody that's listening, I think if you are an artist, you should be seen. Um, and the more you can participate in these initiatives, these festivals, including yours, Right. Um, I think Series Fest is a perfect example. Um, I've met a lot of great writers and, and potential um, artists through through Series Fest. And so I think uh, for me, it's always about you have to get your work out there. Um, that's the only way it's going to get seen and have someone really take take an opportunity to see if they can move it forward. I'm so glad you said that. I think that's Kaylee. Kaylee and I always say the first thing you have to do is go make it, um, you know, get, <laughs> for that reason, go get it out there because, um, you know, that exposure, uh, you know, yeah, go make it and get it out, get it out into the world and, and get it out there. Cause that's, that's how, you know, your career is going to, that's how people are going to see you that can help them lift your career up. So I think that's such a great, I'm glad you said that. Um, so did you always know you wanted to be a producer? I think people lie when they say that. They they always <laughs> knew they wanted to be a producer. I'd be telling you that I that's not for me. You know, I grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, proud to tell anyone and everyone that that's where I'm from. You know, Bridgeport is, you know, a, a town full of hardworking people. But unfortunately, it's also, you know, historically has been one of the poorest cities and one of the richest states in America. And so a lot of opportunities don't come to people who actually work hard. And so I grew up being one of those people. I had both my mom and dad in the home. They worked hard, but we weren't afforded opportunities the same way. And, you know, I didn't even have a uh, cable until I was 12. You know, <laughs> we had, we had a, we had a TV. I think it was black and white and we got channel 55 and, you know, at one point when I was 12, we, we stole HBO or something to that degree. <laughs> but my, my, my point is, is that I was not someone who grew up with my only dream. But I believe that's what gave me the edge because I walked with a purpose, maybe a chip, if I want to be honest, of proving to the world that I'm not where society pushed me to. And more importantly, it gave me a level of curiosity that when I then became exposed to films and TV shows that I was obsessed with trying to figure out what about it worked and what is it that gave me, like, why am I connecting to John Hughes and this story (laughs) when I live in Bridgeport, Connecticut, you know, what about this works? Like, why is today Frasier one of my favorite shows, you know, um, 
right next to a lot of the classics, Martin, for example, you know, uh, why do those things work? Like, why right. do they work? And wanting to obsess, you know, I didn't watch Star Wars when everyone else watched it. You know, I was much older when I first watched Star Wars and became obsessed with wanting to know why it worked. Um, and so there was that advantage to it in that. But I think what I would tell you is by the time I got to maybe my, I don't know, junior year in high school, I knew. Uh, I was stubborn. I, I thought that uh, the only way I was going to do it was through NYU. And so it was the only school I applied to. So it was either I was going to get in or I wasn't. <laughs> so luckily enough, I got in and set me up in New York and the rest is history. Well, and I guess as an also fellow alum of NYU here, we should just give a little shout out and tend some yes. NYU love. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to all the NYU. That's right. Um, if, if someone wanted to get into producing, what, what advice would you give them? First, learn from somebody. You know, someone has to be a mentor to you. You know, there is no magic button to how you put together a project. Um, a lot of times they're the producer, the writer is, is believing in you and your ability to get it made. Um, I think um, you yourself, it's how you eat. You know, you, a lot of times you can prepackage something and not see a dime until someone buys it. And so it's going to take a lot of that, you know, and there's all different types of producers. Obviously there's line producers, there's producer producers, there's executive <laughs> producers. So there's all kinds of levels, but I think the more you slow up, if you're in the earlier side of your career to learn from someone, the easier it gets on the latter end of it to plow through um, and be strategic, you know, see what's going to come down the pipeline. Um, but a lot of times it's as simple as if you work with a producer, um, you know, I think it uh, it's a fast way for them to, if it's the right one, to to um, promote you and get you in the right position. Um, but I would always say, too, because there's so many different producers, you have to just ask yourself the simple question. Do you love being on set or do you love being in the office? Because if you are a set person, obviously, that's a different type of producer. Um, and if you are somebody who loves uh, getting in the weeds with the writer, talking to the networks, that's, you know, that's a whole different type of producer as well. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And you've given some just incredible advice and so excited with what you're building with Populous and, and so much more. And thank you so much for giving all of your insights. So Tamir, before we wrap up, I have to ask you one last question that we ask all of our guests. And it's a fun one. If you could have worked on any television show in history, what would it have been and what would you have done on it? Well, it's a toss up. All right. You can, you can give two answers. Uh, <laughs> I think my first answer would be Frazier. I love how the smartest people, you know, Frazier and Niles, the brother, are also the dumbest and the so-called common man, which is the father, is the smartest sometime in life. You know, it's book smart versus life. And the dynamic just works. It's a it's a it's a reason why that show still holds up. Um, and if I was to participate in it, I would very easily want to a be a writer on that show. And I also want to be in front of the camera because there's not there hasn't been you know, a dynamic yet to show that 
people who look like me, Black people, also have that duality in them, you know? And so it would have been nothing more but to have that opportunity. And Frazier, obviously, if you go back and you look at it, they deal with things like race. Oh, yeah. You know? (laughs) In a way that feels very (laughs) to the day. Like, for example, uh, Dr. Mary, the Uh character. (laughs) If you ever go back, anyone listening, just go back and watch the episodes with Dr. Mary uh, and Frazier dealing with his just annoyance of this Black female co-worker, but having to navigate it in society. Um, it's just clever and genius. And so my point is, there's not enough people who look like Dr. Miriam and me on that show. And I would have loved to not only written for it, not to just write the Black parts, just like <laughs> tell that story, but to be in front of the camera. Uh, that was what I would have done. But secondly, uh, Selfishly Dynasty. Oh, that's uh, a good one, too. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm I'm currently uh, looking at opportunities to uh, tap into, you know, that era. Um, and what does it look like when you uh, drop into sort of those roles? And, and then, you know, it's the 80s and it's all this sort of like pressure on top of everyone. But those are probably my two answers. What would you do on Dynasty? By far, I would have had to be the producer on it. I, think, you know? <laughs> I would have to be the producer on that one. Because I just see, even watching it, you know, where are some of those opportunities um, that I think the show could have went. Did a great job for what it did, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it, I would have loved to have been in charge uh, of Dynasty. Well, those are both phenomenal answers. Tamir, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us today um, and have a great rest of your day. All right. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in for today's episode. SeriesFest is a nonprofit organization and our work would not be possible without our incredible board of directors, staff, and partners who make programs like this podcast possible. We have ongoing competitions, initiatives, and mentorship programs year-round, so please check us out at seriesfest.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay up-to-date on announcements. This episode was edited by Neil Trulio with original music by Adam Westbrook.